Let's pray. Father, we confess this morning that you are the God of our salvation. And so we come humbly and we ask you to lead us in your truth and that you teach us your ways. Make us to know your paths, understanding all of your purposes and your ways as they've been graciously revealed in your son, Jesus Christ. And so we ask God this morning that you would speak for your servants who are listening. Amen. In his novel, The Sun Also Rises, Ernest Hemingway tells the story of two main characters, the first being Jake Barnes and the second, Lady Brett Ashley. They represented the disaffected and disillusioned communities that followed the First World War. Their lives are filled with pleasure and their lives are filled with distractions. They travel from Paris to Pamplona in the novel, chasing after the running of the bulls, chasing pleasure, chasing relationships. Jake desperately loves Brett, but she refuses to reciprocate his affections due to an injury sustained in the war. Brett flits him out splits in and out of relationships while emotionally finding her stability in Jake. It kills him. The novel ends with Jake going to Madrid to once again rescue Brett from yet another failed relationship. And just as you turn to the last page, as hope is finally kindled that we're about to have the hallmark ending. The novel ends with them discussing what could have been. It's a painful story. It's bitter. It's the story in which Hemingway explores all the existentialist themes of purpose and meaning, and readers are only left with questions. There are no answers, and the sun also rises. And we receive a bit more than just a hint of Hemingway's own sense of despair. And the predominant question that we're left to ask and to answer for ourselves is, is it possible in this world, in this world filled with vanity and loss, and this world filled with tragedy and disappointment, chaos, can we find peace? Can we find holy, wholeness? And can we find purpose? And it would be one thing if Hemingway was alone. But rather, it's philosophers, it's novelists, it's psychologists, it's poets throughout the 20th century into the 21st century asking these same questions and finding much the same vain answers. In his influential philosophical work, Being in Time, Martin Heidegger, a German philosopher, set the trajectory for much of modern thought. And after many pages of explanations and words that he concocted and made up, he comes to this simple conclusion that human life is shaped by the knowledge of our death. He says that we are beings, we're creatures that are always moving towards death. And so people objected to Heidegger and said, no, I don't conceive of life that way. And he says, no, it's just when you are avoiding the reality of death that it has, it has you most deeply within its, within its clutches. It's that death shapes our experience of every moment in life. 
We're always oriented to and determined by death. It may come tomorrow, it may come several decades from now, but it's the certainty that casts a shadow across our entire existence. Bleak. And Heidegger concludes that if you want to be an authentic and real human being, you have to embrace all of that, authentic, all of that anxiety and all of that despair and all of the emptiness. This is what it means to be a human. With Ecclesiastes, he resigns that everything is vanity, that all things are full of weariness. And this is the predominant philosophical cast of the world that we live in that informs the culture in which we're asked to live out our days. And despite all of that, Christians have maintained a different posture towards these really profound and meaningful questions, important questions that are asked about meaning and purpose. And our posture is not to dismiss those questions, nor is it to give sentimental, sappy answers about silver linings and dark clouds. That's never been the Christian way. No, but rather our posture towards these questions is defined on the very first pages of the Bible. We find them in our first lesson, in the Lessons in Carol service in Genesis 3. And it's in this passage from Genesis 3 that we see two things. The first thing that we see there about the answers and our posture towards these questions is that we don't shy away from the despair of our world. That we don't hide it and we're not embarrassed by it, but rather than to shy away from it, we affirm it. In Genesis 3, we learn of this, of life's vanity. As a curse is placed by God on the serpent, that he would dwell on his belly in the dust of, of the ground. And then the curse is placed on the ground that God had given to humans to work and to keep. There was now opposition. There was enmity that exists. There's pain in childbirth. There's rivalry between husbands and wives. There are thorns and thistles, and it's by the sweat of our brow that we eke out our existence on the earth. And finally, there was death. Humans were to return to the dust from which they were made. Our world was plunged into disorder, into dysfunction. Everything about God's good order that he had made was turned upside down. And it's critical for us to recognize that this state of affairs was not an accident. Rather, what we learn is that humans brought this all about by a decision that was made, a decision to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge in good and evil, we learn in chapter 3. And it's important for us to understand what's happening here when we made that choice. You see, the serpent came to Eve and he tempts her. And he tells her that she would be like God. And to be like God was to know good from evil. It's important to recognize here that this knowledge was not an accumulation of fresh information or new facts, gaining some more content. But to know good and evil, what this means inside of this ancient scripture passage is to be the judge of what is good 
to be the judge of what is evil. You see, what Eve was being tempted to embrace and what she and her husband ended up grasping onto was this idea of being independent from God. Not for him to be the arbiter of right and wrong, but for them to be their own masters, to be the judge of good and evil themselves, to decide what was good and decide what was evil. The critical moment appears in verse 6. When Eve saw that the tree was good for food. And it's the critical moment because it's there that the fatal moment happened. You see, when Eve evaluated that the fruit was good, she had already departed from God's determination herself. She had already judged what God had forbidden, and she had accepted it inside of her own system of value. It was not a moment of excessive curiosity that just got the best of her. It was not a moment of naive defiance where she just went against what she had been told no. It was intentional choice to break away from God. It was to be their own master. And friends, this is the situation that lives inside of each of us. It's the situation that dominates the human experience. And it is the situation that plunges our world into its despair, into its vanity, into its purposelessness, into its meaninglessness. The good creation shattered, harmony and bliss, bounty and wholeness, everything broken apart, turned upside down, subjected to ruin, is now a world of vanity, death, and futility. And there's something really important to affirm that Heidegger and all the others, that they were right. We are creatures oriented to and determined by death, that there is this huge, enormous shadow overwhelming our lives, every one of us, and that this death is undefeated. It's a universal experience for us. But it's in the midst of that tragedy, in the midst of that sorrow, that we also see a second thing from Genesis 3. Because while we are going to affirm the despair and the tragedy of the world and even radicalize it in certain ways and take it further than anyone could dare bear to do, we're also going to affirm that this despair is not ultimate, that it's not the last word. That yes, this is the third chapter of the Bible, but there are many chapters to come, and this is what we've been rehearsing this morning, is reading everything that flows from this insane moment of our rebellion against God, in which we chose our own way, and then what God chooses to do about it. Because in Genesis 3, in verse 15, as God curses the serpent. Listen to what else he says. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What's critical here is that despite all the vanity, all the death, all the sadness, there's a promise spoken here that's stronger than death and relativizes it. It speaks of an enmity or an antagonism that was going to exist between the serpent and an offspring that was to come. 
That offspring would bruise the serpent's head, and he would do so at the expense of his own heel. That is just to simply say there would be sacrifice on his part. And this is the one that we read of today. The one promised here in the first pages of Scripture. And as the pages roll on, the promises gain steam. And they are elaborated and they take further shape. And then suddenly, in a lowly and poor and humble child, they are fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. This offspring who would crush the serpent's head, who would undo all the sadness, who would take away all the despair. Because you see, he was the one who didn't participate in that autonomous, independent rebellion. He was a submissive son of God. He listened and he obeyed. He didn't grasp for fruit, wanting to be the judge of good and evil himself, but rather he received that from God. And because of that, he was the one, when death came to claim him, death had no hold on him. He couldn't be held in the grave because there was no writ against him. And so then taken down into death, he destroys it in life because he's the one righteous one. And friends, this is the crushing of the head of the serpent. In the overreach of evil, of trying to take God down into the grave in a desperate and chaotic attempt to control the world. And it's the death of death. And what we find here in Genesis 3 is this promise. A promise that overwhelms the reality that we are a being towards death. That we're dominated and determined by death. That there is something more. That we're also beings oriented to promise. That there is a promise that is stronger than death. A promise that is stronger than death because it defeats death. A promise that relativizes all the death and decay that you experience and know and see and can imagine. A promise that death and all of its sadness are not the ultimate thing about your life and they're not the last word. Yes, that in Jesus Christ there's an orientation and a determination that's been made because of what God said he would do through this offspring who would come. An offspring who would come and who would give up himself, who would allow his own heel to be bruised, who would suffer in our place and on our behalf and do so because he's the one qualified, the one righteous one, the one without blemish, blameless and faultless, an obedient son who stands in our place. And this is why the Christian in all the sorrow and sadness of the world, can be of good cheer. We're of good cheer not because we deny the sad things of the world. No, we affirm them. We embrace them. And we also see through them that they're not absolute. They're not ultimate. That yes, there is darkness, but the light shines. And this is the truth of it, a trustworthy statement that the darkness has not overcome it. Amen. Father, we thank you for the joy of reading the story of Scripture, what you have revealed to us, the truth of our world. 
in all of our own sorrow and tragedy, our sadness and chaos, our rebellion, our defiance against you, that light has come, that light conquers darkness in our Lord Jesus who comes to give of himself for us, that we be restored and reunited to you. Teach us these things. Grant us hope. Convince us of your irrevocable commitment to us through your Son. We ask in his name. Amen.